Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our panelist, Jordan Lazowski. And for this episode, the special episode, first time ever, never been on the podcast, I promise. Our minor league guy here at Sox on 35th, Michael Suaro. What's going on, buddy? Uh, Jordan, I'll, I I want Michael to answer first. I, I hear your voice enough. Michael, how are you personally doing today? Uh, you know, it has been way too long since I've been on the podcast with you, man. I was going through withdrawals for a little bit there. But uh, no, I, I'm doing pretty good. Um, finally have some prospect news to talk about. So I, I'm I'm getting ready to roll with this. As someone who's on almost every episode with uh, Duke, you got a good reprieve there. I don't you, you don't have to say you missed him. It's fine. He's still going to be here every time. You don't got to worry about that. You you can say you enjoyed the reprieve that I don't know. Some days I feel like I need so. I don't want to fool anybody at home that's listening to the podcast. I love Jordan Lebowski. There's no doubt about it. That is my guy. Can I get that in writing? You just got it on recording. So, I mean, if you want to like have that set as your ringtone or something like that for any calls you get to make you feel better, get maybe maybe my confidence can radiate into you. Uh, you know, do what you got to do. But, uh, so, shockingly, we actually do have some uh, some White Sox news to talk about in this episode. Um, but before we jump into it, uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com. As well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at SoxOn35th. Michael, obviously, you had some news recently um, in regards to your role here at SoxOn35th. Do you uh, perhaps want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah, so I have officially taken on a role as the managing editor of all minor league content for Sox on 35th. Um, you know, I've been kind of doing a lot of the minor league content for the past couple of years here, and I've had a blast doing it. So I am thrilled to be stepping into a bigger role. And I don't want to give too much away yet, but we got some big things coming down the pipeline. We're going to be, you know, introducing some new forms of content. We're going to be really uh, increasing our minor league coverage. So all I will say is stay tuned for that because we have some really exciting stuff coming down. Of course, dude. I mean, I, we're really excited to see kind of what uh, what what's what's cracking on the uh, the backside of everything. Um, it's it's definitely a role you deserve, man. Um, you do some great work for minor leagues. Um, you've definitely done great work for us, even on the podcast in the past. Like golf clap, golf clap for sure. Very very proud of you, Michael. You you definitely deserve it. But anyway, uh, main reason we have you on isn't to just sit here and bloat your ego. Uh, unfortunately, you know, um, I, I, I can talk I can talk about the Green Bay Packers a little bit later. But um, the White Sox, I <laughs> got the look. As a Bears fan, you better watch it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was about to say, we still had playoff uh, football to watch. You. But- you can't hurt me. I go to Lambeau every year for the Bears Packer game. You physically can't hurt me. So the White Sox made a pitching trade this past week, but it's not the one you'd be expecting. Dylan Cease is still a Chicago White Sox, but Gregory Santos is not. He was traded to the Seattle Mariners to right-handed pitcher. Hopefully I say this right. Prelander Barrera, Zach Deloach, 
and the nicest pick of the 2024 MLB draft, the 69th pick. Uh, Michael, just just to the outsider, um, you know, everybody wants to look at the idea that Gregory Santos got moved. Um, this is a guy that a lot of people expected to be our opening day closer, especially with some of the work he did last year. Um, a younger guy, uh, somebody that really wasn't on my radar personally to get moved. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm alone on that one. Um, what do you think of the value of some of the guys that we got back in this trade? What do you know about Barrera and Deloche and uh, the 69th pick in the MLB draft? Like, what is what what kind of return do you think this is? Do you think this is a return that justifies the player that we just gave up? Yeah. So, I mean, I really wasn't necessarily a strong advocate of trading a guy like Gregory Santos. I did kind of speculate to myself that maybe it's a possibility, especially after the bummer trade. I thought, you know, it, it, trading a controllable reliever was definitely something that I could see Chris Getz at least considering. I like the return they got for Santos. And I'm, I know there's people out there that are not thrilled with this idea, but I overall do really like what we got back for him. I thought the value was more than fair in terms of the guys we got. First of all, Prelander Baroa absolutely electric arm this guy's got a fastball that sits in the upper 90s has a ton of life on it he's got a really really good slider as his second pitch this is a guy that has legitimate late inning high leverage upside does have some control issues um i know he's struggled to keep his walks per nine inning below five and a half but when he's on he can be virtually unhittable he had a cup of coffee in the majors last year, threw a couple shutout innings with, a, with I think, three strikeouts. Just a really good arm that's going to be ready to contribute very soon, if not as early as opening day for the White Sox. And then Deloach. So he's a former second-round pick, and he had uh, some perceived power potential uh, coming into the draft. Took him a couple years to really tap into it. Uh, it seems like this past year he's made some adjustments to his swing to help with launch angle and kind of elevating the ball a little more. And that led to him hitting 23 home runs this past year in the minor leagues. Um, it did also lead to a bit of an uptick in his strikeout rate. Um, he's also pretty solid at getting on base. The one concern I do have with him is it does seem like he's going to be conti- he's going to be um, competing for uh, that right field spot this year. Don't love his fit in right field. I think he's, you know, got average, slightly below average range in the outfield and doesn't really have the strongest arm. I personally think he's a better fit on the left side of the outfield. But overall, I do think he's got a lot of upside as a potential solution to that spot in the outfield. So I, again, I think it's a good pickup for this team, especially with the lack of outfield depth we had. What my favorite part of this trade is honestly getting that extra um, draft pick, the 69th overall pick. I like that move a lot. And it's, it's more than just adding an extra body to our draft class. It's the added flexibility it gives us last year. Uh, the 69th pick was uh, worth just a tick over a million dollars in slot bonus money, which means this year that pool gets upped every year. So I could see that being, over 1.1, 1.2 million potentially this year. Just that added money to work with in a draft class gives them a lot of options. And with the draft lottery going the way it did, it 
didn't really work out in the White Sox favor. Yes, they still got a top five pick, but it was slightly lower than what they were expected to. Plus with the the early signs of what this draft class is going to be, having that extra flexibility, I think, is going to help a lot. Overall, I am not going to say I'm thrilled to see Santos get traded, but overall, I really like the return we got. Here's where I'll differ from most Sox fans. I... I expected Santos to be traded this offseason. I think the bummer trade set the precedent of trading relievers with control. You do that on bad baseball teams. I saw people even suggest packaging Cease and Santos together in a move just to make the return that much stronger. I think these are the sorts of moves you have to make. I know Duke, you mentioned the opening day closer. I, I don't, I don't think that matters uh, who's closing the, they're going to win 60 games. Let's just say you need a closer in 30 of them. Do you really need a, a lockdown closer at this point? I don't think so. As for the turn, I think you're hundred percent right, Michael, in terms of just the overall value is really good here. My hot take will be, I think Baroa has a chance to be just as good as Santos. And if he is, that's just additional value you built on top of it. You ended up in a really good spot with trading reliever. Yeah, well, I think I think especially with uh, Barrera, like it, it it puts you into a spot where he's a guy who has shown really good stuff in the minors, and you know, like you said, Michael, I actually like the terminology of having a cup of coffee in the majors, which is something that you know this team is kind of lacking. Um, we're kind of lacking young talent that has a little bit of a taste of the majors that's ready to kind of jump into that role. It's kind of where that natural progression of where their career is. Like you guys both kind of alluded to, getting that added value on top of a guy who is at least potentially comparable to a Santos with where we're at as a as a franchise at this point, it's I think it's pretty good value. And I think it's something that um, overall, while I was surprised because, you know, I, I really did, you know, while your guys' rationality makes sense of why we would trade a controlled reliever, it was still a situation of just seeing the value in the player that we had and having potential control over that guy to the point where he could be a contributor down the road when we are maybe good again. You know, if that's if that ever happens with where we're at. But um it's uh it, it's a really good return. And I think getting uh getting the 69th pick, you know, I may, I might make the joke about it. But like it's 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 pretty good value because there's still players that are going to be available in that range as well. You know, we kind of see them kind of come out of nowhere every single year who fall under the radar and end up end up being pretty good, pretty good in the minors and move up the move up the ladder pretty quick. So it was interesting to see in back to back trades between Corbin Burns and then this trade that they move those compensatory picks. The thing that frustrates me is. I don't understand why they moved Aaron Bummer then so early in the offseason. I know we've had this debate ad nauseum, Duke, but it's the concept of trading a reliever at the height of their value, and I don't think you did that with Bummer. I think that was a clear case of I'd rather have just traded him midseason, and if he still stunk, you probably would have gotten the same-ish return with the potential that maybe he dead cat bounces a little bit like, Remember, he was good enough at one point that Sox fans wanted to write him into long-term plans. They signed him to a long-term deal. Relievers are volatile. I I think it was at least worth keeping bummer because I don't like trading relievers at the low point of their value. If you're going to do it on a bad team, you have to do it at the high point of their value. 
Santos and last year too started struggling a bit. We know he had some injury concerns, some arm concerns. I think this is absolutely the point where you say, let's capitalize on a good asset here. It's very different from what I feel like Getz did in his first trade in a very good way though. Like I said, I'm very happy with the return just simply from the standpoint of, I think it hits at being able to get the value back plus some additional on top of it, just in the form of Baroa. Yeah. You know, and I think that's uh, you know, even as much as we have argued about Aaron Bummer, as you said, a nauseum, it's a fair question to ask. And, you know, it almost makes you wonder if there was a human element in it. If there was a situation where, you know, Aaron Bummer was like, if I'm not in the future plans here, can like, can we figure something out? So like I can get a fresh start during spring training, you know, and you know, he did just happen to get traded to a, a, a very talented team. So it could have been one of those situations where there was a candid conversation. Um, and, you know, I think that goes back to gets talking about, you know, having discussions with players, even when he was hired on kind of a human level, you know, the human element does kind of take play a role more than people kind of uh, give it credit for. But um, that is not the only trade the White Sox made. Um, and this is actually one I'm really interested to hear uh, Jordan's thoughts on, but I will let Michael take it right off the bat. Um, so the White Sox also traded right-handed pitcher Christian Mena in exchange for outfielder Dominic Fletcher. Um, so, you know, it kind of feels like the White Sox, instead of making that free agent signing for the outfield, it kind of feels like we just kind of loaded up to get more bodies out there for spring training. At least that's how I'm kind of starting to read this situation. I don't know a ton about Dominic Fletcher. Michael, what can you tell us about him? Yeah, so I have my own personal thoughts overall about this trade, but just specifically talking about Dominic Fletcher, he's a guy that his biggest asset that he's going to bring to this team is defense. He's a guy that can play all three outfield spots, play all three at a high level as well. He's been a, a solid hitter in the minors, solid if not unspectacular. Um, he's a guy that hopefully you're hoping is going to be hitting in the 270 to 290 batting average range. He's got some over-the-fence pop, but I think 10 to 15 home runs a year is probably where he's going to sit at for the majority of his time if he's a full-time starter. But again, defense is his calling card. He's got solid range. He's not an elite athlete in the outfield, but he's fast enough. He's athletic enough that he's got more than enough range to even play center field, and he's got a hose in the corner outfield spot. So right field should be no issue for him at all. You know, I, I think his, he's kind of tapped out developmentally in terms of what he can be as a hitter. So I think he's kind of, you know, what you see is what you get at this point, which I mean, if we're being honest, the bar has been set kind of low in right field over the last few years. So I think it could definitely be looked at as, you know, if, if he is what we think he's going to be, I think he's going to be, at least above replacement level. He's, again, not a super high upside guy, but he's a guy that is definitely going to be an asset, especially with his glove. Should be able to do enough at the plate to make him worth it. So, you know, he he's our opening day right fielder as it stands right now, and I, I think that that spot is at least improved over it has over what it has been the past couple of years. Michael, I'm going to ask a leading question here. If he ended up being an Adam Eaton type player, is that, a reasonable and B satisfactory. And I'm talking about Adam Eaton the first time he was around with the White Sox. It's a fair comp. You know, he, 
they are very similar player profiles, especially considering that both of them were big assets in right field, or Adam Eaton was a very big asset in right field, and I think that's what Fletcher can be. Um, again, Fletcher has to hit. It's I think that is a kind of a question. It's not a guarantee that he's going to be a two ninety to three hundred you know batting average guy. He definitely could be. Um, if he can hit consistently, again, he doesn't need to hit for a ton of power, but if he can just get on base at that same rate, I don't think an Adam Eaton type of impactful player is out of the question. Um, I get, again, there's a lot of similarities in their player profiles. And again, it, that's probably what his absolute ceiling is going to be. If he doesn't, he's probably going to be more of a fourth outfield type player. He had a good start to his major league career. I think there was there's a lot of analytics that say he's due for some regression, though. So hopefully, you know, he makes the appropriate adjustments this offseason to where he can sustain some of those numbers he was putting up last year. Um, again, yeah, we'll see. But, I mean, I'm hopeful that he can be that type of player. And I, I say that because I know we have had, and it was good that we had this scheduled uh, we had differing opinions on this trade i have asked all off season for chris gets to do something creative to do something different to get us to think about something and he finally did it this trade and the santos trade were the two where i was like oh this is something new this is something different of course people comment they're like well it's not it's like putting lipstick on a pig yeah i get it but it's still interesting Maine is the tough part of this. I think, to your point, there's plenty of quad A type player risk in Fletcher. I do like him overall. I do like, if you've seen video side by side of his swing and Corbin Carroll's swing, they're very similar. Now, the swing decisions and the impact have to be the same, but the swing is interesting. This is a very much a case of. You have to trust the guys that you brought in if you're Chris Getz. You know, Josh Barfield was with the Diamondbacks. Brian Bannister is a big pitching guru in his own right. They made the decision to send Mena, who's only 20, a big risk in this deal for a guy who's 25, 26 years old. That's a huge risk, and I get it. And I I wouldn't have necessarily moved Mena until maybe one more offseason. But I do get the concern behind Mana and maybe saying, hey, I don't know if we can fix this. Again, it's the sort of risk I wanted them to take. Yeah, I know. We do have some differing opinions about whether or not Mana should have been moved at all, let alone in this trade. Um, I will say there was definitely, there were some concerns with, with Christian Mana. At times, his fastball just looked like an absolute meatball pitch that you get in hitting practice. You know, the fastball... If if you're a pitcher and your fastball is your worst pitch, that's concerning. No question about it. I, after some time to kind of process the trade, I do understand it a bit more, especially considering the amount of arms that they already have brought in this offseason. I do think trading a guy like Christian Mena was a little easier to do after, you know, seeing what Nick Nestrini did at the end of last season, bringing in other pitchers like Jake Eater and Schuster. And, you know, they, they have the depth that they were lacking last year that they could move a pitcher like Christian Mina. I struggle with 
this specific decision to move Christian Mina for Fletcher because, like I said before, Fletcher's probably pretty much tapped out about him developmentally. Like you pretty much know what you're getting with him, and you hopefully he does turn into an Adam Eaton type player. I really hope he does. But overall, I just I think it's more likely that he turns into a fourth outfielder than a player of that type of impact. Whereas, yeah, Christian Mina had a lot of risk that came with his, you know, with this pitch arsenal. But, you know, after the after the fastball, that was clearly his worst pitch. He had some, he has really good breaking pitches. He has always been a step ahead developmentally where he's always been one of the youngest, if not the youngest, pitcher at his level. I mean, last year after Yuri Perez got called up to the majors by the Marlins, Christian Mina was the youngest pitcher in double at the double A level. And no, he didn't light the world on fire, but he held his own. He had, you know, I believe his XFIP was in the 4.2s, which again, as a 20 year old in double A, I think is more than holding your own. Um, I know some people were concerned about his uh, command on the mound his walks were a bit inflated. I do think that was more of a result of him purposely pitching outside of the zone versus him not being able to get the ball over the plate. And I do think that comes with having a lackluster fastball where you kind of have to rely more on getting hitters to chase versus just trusting your own arsenal. And that was definitely something you had to clean up. I just really liked the upside with Mina. And again, it was definitely a big risk. We'll see how it works out. I hope that they're right. I really do. And again, I would trust them over I trust over trusting my own opinion because they have more information than I do. Just from from where I'm sitting, it left me feeling a bit underwhelmed. The fastball part is the most interesting one for me. Because you look at a guy, and it's probably an unfair comparison. But when you say something like, really good off-speed pitches, but his fastball is his worst pitch, I think of someone like Dylan Cease. Dylan Cease's fastball is absolutely by far his worst pitch. But if you put the numbers side by side to it so that people understand, like, what is a bad, why are people saying it's a bad fastball? It sits 91 to 93 miles an hour, 21 to 2300 RPMs worth of spin rate. That's average to slightly above average ish. For anyone who's super technical about it, induced vertical break 17 inches. That's average. Horizontal break six inches. Doesn't really matter as much with four seamers. If you compare that to someone like Cease, who gets over 2,500 RPMs on his fastball and is getting it up towards 98. Now that's a difference of how bad, quote unquote, is that worst pitch. If you're sitting 91 to 93, and I know he's only 20, and that's the hardest part of this conversation. If you're 91 to 93, that part you can probably fix a little bit. Getting more spin on a fastball, there's no proven way other than the sticky stuff bands from years past to increase spin on a pitch. You can try certain things, but there's no way that someone can come in and be like, oh, here's this thing. Like, I, I it's, it's hard for me to say anything other than, yeah, I I get why they're saying that. Like, It's really hard to look at that fastball and really project it forward. Again, they have more information. And the hardest part of this remains the 20-year-old for the 26-year-old. I think there are other players that would have... And I'm not saying... Mena's ceiling was necessarily higher for what they could have gotten for him now. I'm saying if this is all that Mena can get you, I probably would have held on maybe an off season longer. Cause again, it's kind of like the Aaron bummer argument. 
you're you'd probably get something similar if he pitched like it, maybe a little less in a year from now. But between being rushed to a certain point as well as the fastball, that's where my hesitation comes in. Is that is hard to project that pitch moving forward to be much better than it already is, just from a metric standpoint. Yeah, I mean, it's also just no secret that I've been a big Christian Mina fan um, since his days at the Complex League. So this one also is just, I'm trying to keep my own biases out of it as well, just because I have been a strong supporter of his for the past. And that, But that's the hard part for you too, as someone who follows the minor leagues. Your goal is to find the best parts of everyone. Yeah. I think it's easier for me taking that further view out to be super critical. And you're like, well, no, like think more about it as someone who reviews it more. That's why it's fun to have these sorts of conversations. I've just tried my hardest and it's not necessarily the right thing. I've tried my hardest not to attach myself to these guys. Like we did the last time I'm trying to learn from my mistakes of the last rebuild. And I'm not saying it's wrong, right or wrong either way. But that's how I've gotten on this argument versus someone who studies these guys and makes it everything they're doing for our blog or any other blog. You're getting two separate opinions. It's funny you mentioned the mana part about being a guy you really enjoy. It's it's the hardest part of the prospect evaluation. It's someone who doesn't evaluate at me versus someone like you who really sees the ins and outs of it. It's, it's what makes it a fascinating conversation anytime you talk about a prospect. Yeah. And trust me, I've been wrong about plenty of prospects in the past. I mean, me too. I, <laughs> but it's <laughs> I, I, I'm still waiting for Alec Hansen to finally have that breakout season. <laughs> um, but I, here's the biggest part of it for me is, and you just mentioned it yourself too, is the training the 20 year old for the 26 year old. Uh, I'm very high on prospect value when it comes to age versus level of competition. Having a 20-year-old who did hold his own in the upper uh, minor league levels versus a guy that just cracked the majors at 25 years old, that is a big struggle for me. And I, just to put it in perspective, so I am I thought I had pretty much had all of my um, work for the upcoming top 30 prospects list done. Um, just a little minor spoiler for those that that's coming soon. Um, but I obviously have more work to do on that now. Based on just prospect value alone, Christian Mina, before he was traded, was going to be number eight on my list. Fletcher, again, I'm still working on it. At the highest, I could see him being on, on our list. And again, my list isn't the end-all be-all, obviously. But I have him maybe at the highest 13, somewhere in that 13 to 17 or 18 range so just in terms of pure prospect value it just it seems like a net negative to me and that's why you don't see there's the thing is it's like you don't typically see guys around this age being traded when there's Mm -hmm. a little bit of unsureness around their future like you see the 17 and 8 it's so weird to talk about players like this and it's every time we do these conversations that that's a separate thing You see the 17 and 18 year olds get traded because you see the potential and they're just in the system. You can teach them your brand of baseball and you see those guys get traded or you see the 25 year olds get traded, but it's usually for a middling reliever. So for this trade, it's like man is right in that middle part where you probably should still see him 
develop maybe one more season and, and see what you can get there. You know, there are so many numbers you can project guys earlier and earlier, or you think you can as an organization. I'm not saying everyone's perfect. That's where it's, it's for me, you, you, I, I think we all just kind of went, oh, that's a very interesting trade to make because we've seen this before, a quad A type player. I, I don't mean to, mm-hmm. there's that sort of risk in, in Fletcher. I don't mean to whittle him down to only that. For but we've traded Luis Avalons of the world or the Dan Jennings of the world for do- those types of players, so it was a weird trade for me in that respect. But it for it still comes back to you just brought in a guy from that organization. Let's see what happens there. So I I don't mind getting Fletcher. It's obviously giving up mana to get Fletcher. Um, it just doesn't really feel like that's the fit of the value of what you would need to give up to get a guy like him. I do think this team desperately lacks people that even if it's on the absolute average level is consistency. And, you know, you guys brought up Adam Eaton. That level of consistency would be great on a team that we're currently heading towards. Like, even if it's something where this guy is not the star player, he's not the best player on the roster, but you know what you're going to get out of him every single day. If that's the type of player that Fletcher can be, I, I really don't mind this trade in that sense. With Mana, you know, you guys brought up a good point with the fastball because obviously that's the biggest thing that really works against him, you know, is his fastball velocity. You know, when, when he's kind of having issues like that, you know, we look at a guy who ironically is kind of tied to the White Sox because he was the guy that ended up getting traded to the Orioles and a guy like Corbin Burns where when he originally had his first run in the major leagues, yeah, he was throwing 99 to 100 mile per hour gas. Like he was shelling guys. He had a lot of strikeouts. He also was giving up home runs at an absurd rate. All it really took was, and it's it's almost crazy how simple it sounds because it's not that simple, but all it really took was him turning his fastball essentially into a cutter. And it completely changed how the ball came out of his hand and it completely changed how the ball kind of exploded towards a hitter. And it sometimes all it takes is a simple change like that. You know, perhaps the White Sox wanted to do something like that with Mena. Um, perhaps they didn't think that was going to be something that would work for him. But overall, I, I wouldn't have minded really seeing us have another year with him to see if we can't at least try to tinker, try to kind of figure out what his strengths are, potentially, you know, help him develop his fastball into a little bit more of a stronger pitch. It really does hurt seeing a guy like that move, especially if somebody is able to, in Arizona, be able to kind of figure him out and turn him into a legitimate starter in the majors. You know what I mean? So it's something that's going to have to be watched for like next couple of years, give or take, but not horribly offensive trade, but I just don't like, I don't like giving him up for Fletcher. It it makes, you sit back and look at something like this. It makes me feel like, Bannister coming into the organization, I was like, what is he doing? What is this feels like he might have had some sort of stamp on it. Maybe that's giving them too much credit. Maybe that's reading too much into it. But I don't feel like they make this sort of trade without some new faces in the organization because it brings in different development styles. It brings in different evaluation styles. It, it feels like for me, for the first time, we can kind of see that, yes, Bannister is putting his stamp on even some of the lower levels as well, which is good news, I think. Look at this conversation we've had. The last time we talked about 
signings. It was like depth piece, depth piece, depth piece. And we all complained about it. This was interesting. The, the, both of these trades had, I think, pros and cons to them. And I think they're both very interesting to at least say, hey, here's some guys to watch this season that are young and aren't necessarily looking for a bounce back career year. That's exactly what I was hoping for throughout this offseason. Let's hope there's more of these over the next couple of weeks. I, I will I will completely agree with that. You know, as my personal feelings on the trades aside, it is a welcome change in terms of their approach, you know, going after players in this manner. Do have to wonder how much not being able to move cease yet has affected some of these decisions as well. I will just put that out there. Um, but they are getting creative in how they're constructing this roster. And it is clear that Getz is taking a different approach than the previous regime. And don't know if it's going to work. Don't know if it's he's going to fall flat on his face. But at least he's trying something different. So it's just going to be a wait and see what happens type of thing with it. But it is it is nice to see a different approach. And let this be me issuing my public apology to Chris Getz because I know he cares so much about my opinion. You brought up the Dylan Cease trade not happening yet. And then Bob Nightingale releases a report on Sunday that basically says the Orioles were trying to move for Dylan Cease for the exact same uh, price that they were moving for Corbin Burns. So Joey Ortiz and DL Hall and then the pick attached to it. And I read that, and for the first time, I was like, that is the closest we've seen to what other teams were offering for Cease, rather than what Guess was asking for. And that gap between the two is a chasm right now. And it's my public apology of saying, yeah, I would have been very upset if you settled for that trade. I'm hoping more comes, but if that's where Cease's evaluation is right now, my opinion has been you trade him this offseason. But if those are the packages on the table, I think I'm going to have to be far more willing to change that stance because I would not have moved Cease for that deal. I know a lot of people are saying move him just to move him. At this point, it's better than taking the risk into the season. But I don't know if the risk of taking him into the season is outweighed by how bad that package would be. I think if that's the package, you take the risk. Yeah, well, and I think that's that's a key thing, and I'm really glad you brought up the key point of trading him just to trade him. Like, I will never agree with that mindset, especially when it comes to star-level players. Well, there's a I, I when I said that, it was more so around like, hey, you're not getting two top 100 prospects. You're getting one and two of the other three pieces that you really want. That's negotiating it down from maybe exactly what you want, which is pie in the sky type stuff that you're never really going to get. But the difference between negotiating down a little bit and accepting the best offer on the table and then that being the best offer on the table, though, those are two different things. Trade him just to trade him maybe isn't the right thing, but trade him and understand that that's still a significant package. The, The Orioles trade package would not have been a significant package. Just to clarify. Well, it it makes it makes me think that he the White Sox obviously aren't getting really close to the package that we have 
expected because you know e- even even to the point where like you can convince yourself down from what you actually want right. there has to be a limit you know what i mean that's exactly what it is is it's not that just they're not getting what they want because if sketch just wasn't getting what he wanted that'd be frustrating but he's not getting what he wants and he's not even getting to the point where he's willing to accept it and it's like that point and then where other teams are at is way too far apart um 100 on that board I think most top GMs honestly go into negotiations, maybe like a tier too higher of what, like what they want is a tier too higher than what they know they're going to get. You know what I mean? It's kind of the ability to mentally keep it. So you're not underselling what the value of the asset that you have and being able to just kind of take what's on the table because, you know, by playing the waiting game, that gets incredibly frustrating as a fan, and it's definitely understandable. And we discussed this quite a bit on, I believe, the last two episodes um, of just kind of being frustrated about not having news or, you know, kind of just waiting for the axe to fall finally. But if it can effectively get you a better return than what the Brewers just got for Corbin Burns, then it's worth the wait. You know what I mean? Now you can't go too far down the road because you chance the idea of Dylan Cease potentially having a terrible start to the season where his value absolutely plummets. I don't, it's it's not outside the realm of possibility. Dylan has had times like that throughout the course of his career, but there's also something to be said to not accept below what his current value is by kind of just taking too many concessions. You need to be able to understand the asset that you have. You need to be able to understand the value that it adds to the ball club you're trading it to, not just the current value it has to you on your roster. And you need to be able to work that against the team that trades for him. Maybe he tried to do that with Baltimore and Baltimore just wouldn't budge. But if Baltimore was only willing to give up what they gave up for Corbin Burns, I'm 100% behind Chris Getz on holding firm because I just don't think that the price is right there. And as we get closer to spring training and the beginning of the start of the season, Teams are going to pick up the phone. They're at least going to want to hear what Chris Getz actually wants. So, I mean, it, I don't think Baltimore, and that's even if Baltimore's out of the discussion, because I don't think that's a foregone conclusion either. If Baltimore's out of the discussion, more people will join it, especially as we see some of the free agent holdout holdouts at pitching start to sign contracts. I think it, that might even allow the market to fire up, and that could be something that Getz is playing into as well. It is fascinating. It's fascinating to finally have something from a team other than the White Sox in terms of what the actual offer on the table is. And I will say, too, after seeing the two trades go down yesterday, or excuse me, Saturday, I feel a lot better about what Getz is going for than I did just by having the bummer trade as my frame of reference. Now with two additional trades on this, I feel a lot better about what he's looking for, what he's targeting and the eventual value he will get back. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Also be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th to stay up to date with yo, Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined as always by Jordan Lazowski and Michael Suero. Well, joined this time by Michael Suero. Uh, we'll be back next week as we cover another week of White Sox baseball. Thank you, and go Sox. Go Sox. Go Sox. Go Sox.